So I wanted to talk tonight about um, the statement, heaven on earth. We, we could pose it as a question even, like, really? <laughs> could that be true? Sounds almost like a statement of wishful thinking. Wouldn't it be nice if the earth, earth was just more heavenly? Meaning more to my liking is what we really mean by that. Um, so I thought tonight we could look at that, just explore that concept um, a little more thoroughly. And we can do that in both the relative way and maybe in a more ultimate way. So in a relative way, this concept of heaven on earth would be like the idea of a, a Shangri-La, you know, have, you know, the, the actual physicality on earth being so perfect that it was just easy to live there. You know, just everything couldn't be better. Right? So th those kind of places can exist in mythology and far off lands, but um, the world doesn't seem like that now. Right? So it's, so it can raise the question, what, what do we actually mean by this? And um, uh, uh, some years ago, um, the disciples of Jesus asked him, you know, when will this kingdom of heaven that you've been talking about, when will it come? You know, it's sort of the same question, you know, like when, when is everything going to get really good? And it's, it's similar. Um, I mean, the question obviously um, shows the cluelessness of the disciples because they're really inquiring, you know, when when is this when is this going to be manifested, you know, for our benefit, of course. Um, you know, we hope to sort of by hanging out with you, you know, we hope to be able to just ride on your coattails and 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 see what you've been talking about, having it be presented to us. And um, at the time, the concept of, uh, of a Messiah was actually someone that was not um, not just spiritual, but actually a political leader, maybe even a military leader that would bring back the, the glory days of Israel. So it was really thought of that way. And a lot of people, or at least some people, saw Jesus as being that person and as such misinterpreted what he was actually talking about. So in his response to the question, like, when will this kingdom of heaven that you've been talking about, when will it come? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, when you're on a road trip with the family and the kids in the back seat says, you know, how much longer, when are we going to get there? You know, is that kind of, thing, you know, we're sort of waiting for something to happen. Um, but his response to that, um, just a few very short sentences, um, gave some really good pointers. Um, the first thing he said is that uh, it will not come by waiting for it. And then he said, it, it won't come um, by looking for it, like here it is, or there it is. Then he says, it's spread upon the earth and people don't see it, right? Just a few few really quick pointers. But um, 
what those pointers represent are um, actually really instructive and can save us a great deal of time if we actually understand them. Um, and he goes, he goes even further to say that this kingdom of God is within you, right? So this, this is a very different um, heaven than um, many of us were taught at growing up. You know, it's not something distant. It's not something after death. It's not something for the chosen few. I mean, he's saying it's it's everywhere. It's here. It's spread upon the earth. It's not something distant. But what we were taught about, what we were taught about heaven was that it was a place, namely in the heavens, of course, um, and it was um, something for um you know then after a certain judgment you might be granted entrance to and and it was characterized it was sort of like earth but um you got to see your friends and, and loved ones um only they were all younger and um you know in their ethereal bodies and they all got along i mean that that's how it differed from life on earth and that um, but that's not well, clearly what not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a location. He's not talking about power, right? He's not talking about politics. He's talking about something um, different than that. So the the first instruction about um, it will not come by waiting for it. So what is I mean? We only wait for something to happen if we feel like it's absent now, right? If it was present now, we wouldn't wait for it. So this whole concept of waiting for something to happen um, implies that our our belief, our certainty is that, well, it's not here now. So maybe it'll come by, by waiting for it. But he's saying, no, it's not that. So what, uh, you know, the logical assumption is, okay, I won't wait for it. I'll go out and seek it. I'll go out and seek what's lacking now. And maybe I'll find it. You know, maybe I'll find it in the next, you know, teaching, the next guru, the next philosophy, the next experience, next sensation, the next high state. Maybe I'll find it. Right? But then, then the next thing he says, no, it's not there. It's not here. And what he's saying is it's not in anything that we can point to. It's not in, not to be found in the world of form in the next, by form, I just mean anything that appears within awareness. So it can be the next experience, um, the next sensation, the next thought, the next belief, the next memory, the next hope, all of that. And he's saying, no, I'm not there either. Okay, so he's 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 already eliminated waiting for it, and he's he's saying, yeah, and it can't be found by seeking for it outside of ourself. Um, but it is everywhere. It is already present, not in some distant heavenly realm. But here already on this plane, on this earthly plane, as is, 
no conditions. You would think most people would take this as, as being really good news, right? That it's already here, it's not distant, it's available. But most people, most people don't want to hear that. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, one is that it's radically different than what um, we were taught. We were taught that, um, you know, this heavenly reward is for people that um, played by the rules. You know, got good grades, did the right thing. That's that's not what it not what's being pointed to, and I think the other reason that um, people don't really care for this kind of teaching very much is that you know it's almost like you know we can hear the mental processes like wait a minute if it's spread upon the earth and available to everyone that, that means everyone I mean that means even people I don't like. Even people I don't agree with, you know, them too. You know, how how special is that? You know, I thought I was I was one of the chosen ones. I was on the, the fast track. It was I was not like those other people. So the mind can um can do funny things with uh a, quite a direct teaching. And, you know, what's being said is that um, waiting for it doesn't work. Speaking for it doesn't work. And it doesn't, neither works because it's already present. I mean, in some ways, it's a very uh, Zen-like thing to say that uh, it seems almost like a koan. You know, what's, what's not present what what is present now, but it can't be sought, and it can't be found by waiting. And so it it just takes away from possibility if we really listen to what this teaching says. It just takes away from possibility, um, you know, seeking in to find what is truly freeing uh, and seek in the next experience, whatever it is, even high spiritual enlightening experiences <laughs> or visions or ecstatic states or, you know, um, being of service, being anything that we can do thinking that that will be um, the source of freedom um, misses the mark because it misses what is that which is already present, already free, already um, beyond the impermanent, right? So the, the mind can come up with all kinds of arguments why that shouldn't be the case. I mean, we can point to how the, the world exists right now. Um, 
you know, the degree of chaos, the degree of, um, you know, greed and hatred and um, ethnic tensions and racial um, uh, uh, disturbances and lifestyle judgments about how people are living their life, many, many ways that people can try to condemn or put down or mute um, someone's else's behavior um, out of their own judgment. So we can see that, but we can see that all of those are uh, how the just the human mind is um, not satisfied with what he has. Right? Because the what's required just to live this life is pretty simple, actually. I mean, it you know, food, shelter, water, clothing, you know. And then everything else is is nice to haves. You know, and we can envy somebody else's niceties. But you know, that is unrelated to happiness. You know? You know, and we could say, well, you know, you know, life is problematic because, you know, someone could take what we have, even if it's not much, we could be, you know, lose what we have. There could be a level of fear there. And I, I'd suggest that's probably not um, that relevant for most of us that have the time to look, listen to a talk like this. Maybe if you're living in Ukraine, yes, it's worthy of concern, right? Um, but for most of us, that fear of loss is not really, you know, food, shelter, clothing. It's really loss of, you know, personal self-esteem, you know, self-image. It's to our psyche, those kind of losses. So we can really look at that to see whether that's really what we're fighting to hang on to or not. We can also say, well, yeah, well, what about sickness, old age, and death? What about that? I mean, that isn't that really, you know, the, just that looming in our future isn't that enough to put a cap on our happiness in, in this lifetime? But when we really look at that, we can see that those. What we're talking about there is is the body, right? Sickness, old age, death of the body. But it's not the body itself that's fearful. You know, the mind is the only thing that can fear death. Now, the body may be uncomfortable, yes, no doubt. But what is really, what really causes us suffering is what our mind is telling us about that and the degree to which we believe the mind. So the mind, the mind is what can conjure up the fear. You know, we're not saying that, you know, the body can't hurt. We're not saying that at all. But it's really the mind saying what that is, what that means. 
that causes the real suffering. But if we can see that the only way that um, the sensations of the body are experienced is in awareness, um, you know, perhaps we can look and see that um, that awareness um, that's aware of the body's loss of capacity That awareness itself is that, what witnesses that, notices that. So the body undoubtedly will age and one day die. But what notices that, does that awareness age? Is the awareness that is happening in this moment, is it different? And the awareness when you were 10 years old, for example. Is it not the same awareness? The content, of course, has changed. I mean, the body has changed, the cells have changed, the memory banks are, there was more deposited there. You know, the ideas have changed, all of that, certainly. But what's aware? Is it not just complete already and always has been unchanging? Really, that which is unchanging is the only thing that has the capacity to notice change. And everything else changes. Every everything else, everything else in the world of form always is changing. And we can um, sort of bemoan that fact, you know, like life is impermanent, but it's really that impermanence that allows life to happen, life to continually renew itself. It's almost like, um, you know, if there was a permanent rainbow in the sky, you know, we wouldn't pay any attention to it. It was just there day after day, same old rainbow, you know, no, no need to even mention it. But it's only because it's impermanent just for a short while, every now and again. We say, oh, there's a rainbow, how beautiful. Okay, so we're not talking about, um, uh, when we're talking about the, the mind's capacity to um, think about its you know, what could be better or change, how, how the other person could be different or more to my liking or how the world should be. All that kind of thinking is what um, creates a disturbance, right? So this is, this is actually what the hell realm is. It's like, um, is thoughts that are, that we believe that create this disturbance um, and um, we get to live life, be, viewing life through that filter. Um, and so that's what life looks like. Um, and, and then we get to live in that life. And then we have the audacity to blame life. <laughs> but it's just, it's just those thoughts that are um, 
about life and about how it should be and how it could be better, how to be how it could be more to my liking. Um, those are what creates the ripples, the waves, the disturbances. So when I'm saying that, what I'm not saying is, therefore, we should just think nice thoughts. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm also not saying to use our mind to manifest things, sort of coerce life, to create things to benefit me. Not saying that either. What I'm saying is that um, the thought itself by vesting our reality in our thinking mind, um, we tend to see life conceptually. And by seeing life conceptually, we're at least one step removed from living life authentically and directly. And that, that creates this sense of separation, like I'm here as a separate being, and life's happening over there. And, um, you know, all I can do is is try to make the best of it, try to get along, try to um, sort of manage things as best I can um, to my own advantage, right? If we see ourselves as separate, um, that's a reasonable conclusion. But seeing, holding ourselves apart that way is founded on belief in the primacy of our own thinking mind. In other words, believing that conceptual thought is real, is more real than whatever's happening. And it's not, it's, it can only be an abstraction from what's happening. Any thought, even the most noble, spiritual, uplifting thoughts are still at best concepts. Talking about here is not having the right thoughts or, you know, improving our mental outlook. It's really to see that that whole belief in our own mental primacy is, is just an abstraction from life. It's not, it's not the actuality of it. Okay. So, um, so what we're talking about here is, is not waiting for something to change, to be given to us at some later date. You know, as um, spiritual people, the thought is that this enlightenment will happen sometime in the future. So we're waiting for some particular experience that will be proof that I truly am is present. Right? And we can defer to our thinking mind saying, well, it hasn't happened yet. Therefore, I'll wait for it in the future sometime. Or maybe it doesn't exist at all. Who knows? But in the meantime, there is this awareness of our struggle to try to find 
heaven on earth, this enlightenment, you know, that which will resolve everything, right? By whatever name we want to use, right? The names don't matter. But it's that same movement, like, you know, when's it going to happen? When am I going to sort of feel at home in this world, in this body? Ask myself, what has to happen for that? You know, so we wait for some future, future event. <laughs> Years ago, as the, as the BCs were counting down to zero, you know, they were anticipating, you know, Messiah to come and, and put everything right. You know, and then here we are 2,000 years later, and we're, we do the same thing in different ways. We're waiting for the next politician to make everything better so we can relax, so we can feel good, so we can feel at home. But the, the movement is the same. It's the movement of looking to something outside of ourselves to make the circumstances feel so comfortable to us will feel good. And then we, we look around, we turn on the news, and we just see the turbulence that's happening. And we say, well, it can't be happening now. Look at the evidence. You know, I can't, I can't relax into my own true nature now, not with, not with my limitations and quirks and, and, you know, bad habits. I can't, you know, not with my karma. But that's, that's not what this pointer is talking about. It's, a, it's already spread upon the earth and people don't see it. So he's not, he's not talking about fixing anything. He's not talking about changing anything. He's talking about seeing something. You know, real, recognizing something that's already present. So what he's saying, it's the gift has already been given, and your task is to see it. That, to my mind, sounds a whole lot easier than, you know, sort of having, you know, some trepidation throughout my whole life, whether... I'll be judged at some future point in time to see if I make the team of my dreams, you know? But it, it's, it's a very direct statement, you know, that if, if it already exists on this plane, here and now, what, what am I missing? I mean, if it's right here, what am I missing? And he says that that's the task to recognize what's already been given. And Rumi says the same thing, only he says it with a, um, a little bit of a bite to it. And what he says is that in this lifetime, we have one task. And if we complete all kinds of other tasks, we fail to complete this one task. Her life will have been wasted. A harsh statement, right? 
But he, he's saying the same thing. He's saying that it, our one task is to recognize this gift that has already been given. It's not absent in anyone. It's not incomplete. It's not lacking at all. It's just unrecognized. This awareness that we're talking about is it, it's its nature is formless, without form. It's without it's actually without attributes of any kind except this capacity to be aware, to have this alive awareness, this capacity for knowingness. In um, Qigong, a lot of the exercise have to do with um, sort of uh, imagining energies from above, from the heavens, you could say, you know, to be um, brought in through this body as, as clean, fresh energies and to allow sort of stale energies within the body to be discharged into the earth. So the, the you know the human form could be seen as the nexus between heaven and earth. Um, and it's interesting to note in um, uh, Taoism, more ancient Chinese um, pictographs, the 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 symbol for what's now translated as heaven, um, because a lot of these movements are described as, you know, heaven and earth. And the, the word that is translated as heaven in um, ancient Chinese pictographs is actually means sky. So it's not, it's not a heavenly domain, something ethereal, something having to do with after death. They're talking about sky, right? The expanse. And this is, you know, in, you know the time of our ancestors, they go out at night and look up Upward, and uh, you know they see the immensity of the of eye, right? But they don't actually—you can't actually see space. But what gives space its dimension is um, the objects that appear within it. You know, so we get the the sense of great distances when you know we can look at the moon or the stars at night. So it's really the objects within that invisible vastness that give, that actually convey the sense of immensity that it is. So um, there's sort of an analogy that makes sense in using terms like heaven and earth um, when we're talking about spirituality, um, because the, the heavens, the space above us, uh, is similar to awareness in a way, in that um, the spaciousness above us, the air above us, um, accommodates 
whatever form may appear within it. So it can accommodate clouds and raindrops and birds and um, moon and the stars and all of that, right? Without diminishing the space, the space is still as immense as it ever was. You know, despite clouds moving through it, birds flying through it. So we have this the formless nature of the sky above us or the heavens above us. This formless nature, which can accommodate form. And awareness is like that, exactly. Not physical space, but that sense of no limit sense of vastness and within that everything else appears you know whether it be a thought or a feeling or the sensation of the body or the, the sight of the tree or hearing a sound or tasting all of that are appearing within the formless nature of awareness. So that's that's the analogy with um, this ancient term of heaven, heaven and earth, the um, that duality, the duality of the formlessness of the heavens, of the sky, that capacity to um, allow everything to occur without its own diminishment. And then there's everything that appears within it. But the awareness itself is what's primary. You can have awareness without the appearance of form, but you can't have form without the appearance, without awareness. In fact, nothing, we've never experienced anything in our entire life except within awareness. So we can see that that has a, a certain constancy to it, that it's, it has this unchanging quality, not unchanging in a, in a dead kind of way, but uncha unchanging in the same way um, that the, the experience of now is unchanging. It's always now, right? and it's always happening within awareness. So they're not actually two different things. They're just how life unfolds. And within that capacity to know, everything is, everything else, everything arises. So even though the awareness is primary, um, it's still a pretty good show. You know, we, we may not be able to say for certain that any of what appears within that awareness exists independent of our awareness, but we can say that it is one heck of a show and we're present for it and we can participate in it. That's, that's really the beauty of it. So when we talk about heaven on earth, it can sound a bit naive, like, well, that's, that doesn't seem possible, not the way things are now. 
but I'd suggest it's it's the perspective of how we're looking at that. If we're seeing, if we're looking at what arises within field of vision, yeah, it's chaotic, it's turbulent, it can be ugly, it can be violent, it can be all of that. And yet from that perspective of awareness um, that is already um, present in all of us, complete, doesn't need improvement, that from that perspective, um, it's okay. I'm not saying that it, you know, can't use our help. <laughs> But it, at the same time, it is how life is presenting itself at every moment. And that awareness is at peace because it is, um, in the end, not subject to any more than the sky is subject to harm by, um, you know, an explosion happening. Explosion dies down, the skies remains. We tend not to appreciate that capacity of awareness. It's, I mean, it's like the proverbial fish searching for water. You know, it's so much a part of our experience that we don't see it or appreciate it. But it is, it is what is present for everything. And that's, that's where we can truly rest. That's the only place where we can truly rest. If we're waiting for it to happen, you know, for circumstances to change or from, you know, this body-mind to improve enough that I feel good about it or for my neighbor or community or that other group over there to finally come around to how I want them to be. If we're waiting for that, we'll wait a very long time. We can see that what we truly are is already um, complete, at peace, And already at one with everything that's experienced by virtue of the fact that everything happens within that awareness that we are. Personal, just is functioning through this form, as this form, and, you know, witnesses the world through these sensing organs that we have in this body-mind. So it can feel like it's we're viewing things from this body-mind, but the actual awareness itself is not limited to our particular body-mind, just one awareness, no, no boundaries to it, no differentiation. 
but don't take my word for that. <laughs> but it's worthy of exploring for yourself to see if that is truly the case. And perhaps upon that exploration in your own experience, we can discover that what is living this life is is source experiencing its own creation through you. <laughs> 